Welcome back to the Story of Computing podcast. From the time when debugging involved actual bugs to today's latest and greatest smart technology, every Monday we will dive into the stories of the individuals that made today's technology possible. I'm your host, Sarah Tibbetts, the founder and lead developer of Tipsar Software. Today, I bring you the story of Annie Easley. born in Birmingham, Alabama in 1933. Unfortunately, the opportunities for black children at the time were few and far between. Annie was interviewed for the NASA Herstory Oral History Project in 2001. We will be quoting this interview today during much of the episode. In the interview, she describes her relationship with her mother. She says, I was raised by a single parent. My mother was my greatest role model. She still is. My mother always told me, I can hear her tapes being played in my mind forever, but my mother always told me, you can be anything you want to. It doesn't matter what you look like, what your size is, what your color is. You can be anything you want to, but you do have to work at it. And I still believe that. She encouraged me daily. I'm so grateful that I had my mother as a mother. Annie's mom understood the value of a good education. In the fifth grade, she enrolled Annie at Holy Family High School, where she believed she could obtain a better education. Annie remained there through high school. She thoroughly enjoyed school and did really well. She worked hard and graduated as the valedictorian of her high school class. After high school, Annie enrolled at Xavier University, where she majored in pharmacy. In the interview, she explains why she chose pharmacy. I just thought it would be fascinating. It's just something that I had thought about doing. Now, my original plans, when I was a little girl, I wanted to be a nurse. But I think that was because my mother instilled that in me. Because when I grew up, nursing and teaching were, I guess we call the protected fields. I could very well get a job in nursing or teaching when you're done with school. I didn't want to teach. But the nursing field, I always said, I want to be a nurse. But maybe about the 10th grade, when I was about 15 or 16, I decided pharmacy is something. Now, it may have something to do with going to the corner drugstore, where they had all the candy and the ice cream. I'm serious. Annie stayed at school for two years without finishing the degree. In 1954, Annie returned to her hometown and married a man that was in the military. She started working as a substitute teacher. At that time, Jim Crow laws were in effect. They stated that blacks were required to prove their literacy through a test in order to vote. Annie tells her experience. The way I grew up, or where I came from, in order to vote, you had to take a test and pay a poll tax. We had to literally take a test before we could register to vote. And as soon as I turned 21, because we had to be 21 then, As soon as I turned 21, I went down to vote, to sign up, and I was very much, I'd studied, I knew all of my Alabama history, and the test giver looked at my application and said, you went to Xavier University, $2. He never asked me one question, but after that, I started to help train people to prepare for the test for voting. That was in Birmingham. This law wasn't outlawed until 1964. Annie passed the test and helped others prepare. Later that year, she moved to Cleveland, Ohio, which was where her husband's family was located. There she tried to complete her degree in pharmacy, but the local university had ended its pharmacy program. 
One day, Annie read an article in the newspaper about twin sisters that worked as computers for the Aircraft Engine Research Laboratory. She recounts how the article struck her interest and ultimately changed her life. The work that was being done by those sisters, those twin sisters, those computers, the people called computers, it was very interesting to me. It was something that I had real interest in doing, and I was not disappointed when I came out, when I had the interview, and when I started to work. I just thoroughly enjoyed it, and I enjoyed my career here at NASA, at NACA, and to see it become what we were, and the changes that were made. But no, the job as I saw it, the work, as I encountered, there were no disappointments, ever. The article mentioned that the laboratory was looking for women that were skilled in mathematics to join their team. Annie applied, and was accepted, and started work only two weeks later at the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, which was known as NACA and has now become NASA. Annie describes what her job was like back in the early days. Our jobs were really to do the computation for the engineering side of the house. The engineers and the scientists are working away in their labs and their test cells, and they come up with problems that need mathematical computation. At that time, they would bring that portion to the computers, and our equipment then were the huge calculators where you'd put in some numbers and it would clonk, clonk, clonk out some answers, and you would record them by hand could add, subtract, multiply, and divide. That was pretty much what those big machines, those big desktop machines, could do. If we needed to find a logarithm or an exponential, we then pulled out the tables and did it. We'd look up the tables and then put it in by hand, or a square root, all those things. We had tables that we looked up. And that's why, in my lifetime, to have seen where we were and where we are, that I can have a little tiny something the size of, oh gosh, well, my watch, practically, and it can give me all those functions that used to take up so much space and do so much time to do, and the clonk, clonk, clonk. Shortly after starting work, Annie realized she was one of only four black employees at the facility of 2,500 people. She describes how she handled this realization. There was an African-American male working in the engineering side, and the other group, in another building, there were two African-American females working. I didn't feel like I'm a minority. I'm less. I just have my own attitude. I'm here to work. You may look at me, someone else may look at me, and see something different, but that's okay. But I'm out here to do a job, and I knew I had the ability to do it, and that's where my focus was, on getting the job done. I was not intentionally trying to be a pioneer. I wanted a job. I wanted to work. But it was never a poor me, though I know I'm not so unaware that I don't know what's going on around me. Remember that my mom said, you can do anything you want, but you have to work at it. And that was part of it. With her strong teachings, I was able to do it. Annie did not let this discourage her and worked to continue her education while working at the laboratory. She earned her Bachelor's of Science in Mathematics from Cleveland State University in 1977. She attempted to receive funding for the degree through NASA to pay for the courses, but she faced some setbacks. She says, It was very secretive, but I know for a fact they had done it for undergraduates. When I chose to take math courses, which were work-related, having the knowledge that it had been done before, I talked to my supervisor, Bert Henry at the time, and he said, oh no, Annie, they don't pay for any undergraduate courses. I tried to explain to him. By then, we had a junior college, Cuyahoga Community College, that was now here, and they were offering classes. They sent out a flyer from the lab saying, check with your supervisor, you may be able to get aid for these courses. Now that's a junior college. I tried to explain to my supervisor that, when I asked him, because you had to go through channels, when I asked him about aid for education. As I said, he told me, they only do it for professionals. I showed him the flyer that said they may be able to get help. I said, Bert, that's a junior college. It didn't matter. 
His mind was made up. The answer was no, they will not give you help. So I went about my business, I paid for my own course, and one of the engineers that I worked with said, Oh, Annie, that's ridiculous. He took it upon himself to go to training, and explained to the woman in training that she doesn't want to cause any problems, but this is what's happening. And as it turned out, when I finished that course, I turned in my grade. Well, he sent it to training, he, my supervisor, and it was a perfect out for the woman in training to call him, and she said, I see that Annie took a math course. Why didn't she come to us for financial aid? And he says, oh, well, I didn't think you did that. And what she told me, she says, he must have slept through all his supervisory training because we've helped a lot of people. Now, I cannot tell you whether it was his ignorance. I don't know why, but you can't go around. When they say you go through channels, that's what you had to go through. And he was the one, the first part of that. And he was this one who said no. I do not know why he said no. I don't know if it's his, as I said, I don't know. Was he just unaware or did he choose to say you don't deserve it? I don't know, but he was very apologetic to me because he said he didn't know it, but he wouldn't listen when I tried to give him an example. So you live with that kind of thing, but you don't let it stop you. I could afford to pay for my course and I'd already registered for the next course. I didn't ask for the first one I took. It was when I was getting ready to take the second one that I asked him. The thing is, I don't know if he was that apologetic. If he felt bad, as he claimed, but he never volunteered to pay for the course. Now that was the math courses, and they were really work-related. There were other courses I took. Then, when I decided I wanted to, I realized someone who'd had his, he'd been paid while on leave. They paid for him to go to school, to finish up his degree. I asked for a similar thing, through training. They told me absolutely not. I don't put a label on it, but there must be a reason. No one ever gave me a reason. They just told you no one ever did it. You go back to them with evidence that this person had this done for them, such and such a date. Well, I don't know anything about it, or there isn't time to play with these people who, the ones who have the authority to say yes or no. But I'm able to take care of myself, and that's what I meant about it. If you can't work with them, you work around them. So I was determined that this is what I'm going to do. Even when I chose to take off three months, in fact, I stopped turning in my grades because it didn't really matter anymore. But I chose to take leave without pay to finish up, and that's how I requested the leave without pay. It took a while for them to okay it. I did it in the appropriate time, but it took a while. I was already on leave when they finally okayed it, because going and taking those three courses while working full-time, it had been, you know, it kept me going a lot, and I decided, I'll just take leave without pay and finish up. Take four courses. I had a plan. If I take four courses, I could finish up at such and such in time. So that is what I did but it took them a long time to just okay it. In fact, I talked to his director and said, it's very difficult for me to get this okayed, and he assured me that it was. He says, oh, Annie. I said, well, why? Is it sitting on someone's desk? Again, you know, the channel bit. I just said, well, school's starting, I'm on leave. And that's just what I did. I just went on leave. It was okayed after I'd been on leave for two weeks. Leave without pay. Still, that is not enough to deter me from my life goals of, you keep going, because there are people who have authority and I think sometimes they abuse it. But it makes them think, I'm in charge if I say no. It makes me feel real good. But you don't stop the person from forging ahead. I love that Annie didn't let NASA not answering her stop her from achieving her goals. I think it's awful that they didn't give her the same opportunities that they clearly gave others. But I'm so glad that she continued to fight for what she knew she wanted to do. Eventually, the laboratory Annie worked for switched to using digital computers rather than humans. Annie remembers what those days were like. I remember when it was such a big step when we got the computers themselves. The thing with the key punched cards 
where we'd go in and punch the cards. All of our instructions were on a set of cards, a deck of cards, we called them. And then we traveled to some other building where the computers were and feed those cards into a machine and they would print out some answers internally. And a new set of cards would be punched out with their answers on that new set of cards. And then we'd physically take those cards over to another machine that would print out the answers on great big, huge sheets. That was a process that we did time and time again, but we had progressed from doing those things by hand. Annie took this in stride and learned to program the computers. She wrote code that researched energy conversion systems. This code analyzed alternative power technology. This even included the battery technology used for early hybrid vehicles, years before hybrids became commonplace. This code was also used for the Centaur upper stage rocket. In her interview, Annie explains her experience working at the lab. One of the great things about working here at NACA and NASA was the depth of talent that you were surrounded with. And that was not just the scientific talent, but it's just a broad spectrum. Being so self-contained, we were like our own little world because we had our own print shop, our own photographers, of course, our security forces. We had our own firemen, anything we wanted. We could just pull on it from right inside. It was like our own city. There were three different groups throughout the lab. We were in building 49. There was another group, I think, in the building that we called the 8x6 supersonic wind tunnel. And Christine had two groups. Christine had another group of computers located in, oh gosh, I think it was called CNT or ERB, Engine Research Building. There were a total of three groups of computers. People computers, throughout the lab at the time, and all doing very similar work, but on different projects. And as I said, besides that, we'd get the data, we'd plot the data by hand, or we'd read strip charts that have come off the equipment. That was just the various things that we did. We were called computers, officially, until the machines started coming in. So to distinguish us from the machines, the machines were the computers, and we were given titles as mathematics technicians or mathematicians, and I don't remember the year that happened or the years. We were a team. We were always a team. That's part of the greatness about the people. There were times when there was a deadline that just had to be met, and to have the team, you saw the real teamwork in action, because people would just jump in and do portions and pieces to meet those deadlines. There were some that, you know, they could come and just give you the work that needed to be done. Other times, you were helping your coworker, your office mate, or you were helping the person next door. This was truly a teamwork effort, and that was part of the, I think when you talk to so many people I'll hear, they will ask you what you like about working there, and they will say the great people they had to work with to get the jobs done. Now, you didn't just do something and say, I'm done. You kept working. Throughout Annie's career at NASA, she worked to help others. She participated in tutoring programs and was a speaker that traveled to schools to tell students about what she did at NASA. She specifically targeted women and minority students in the hopes that they would consider a career in STEM. There were also times in Annie's career when she faced discrimination. She recounts, As a minority, I knew that it was there, and one of the things I remember is having a picture made at the worksite in Building 49. We had a piece of equipment that it took, I think there were six of us who worked on it, two to each panel. There were six people that worked on it, and now someone took a picture of us in a work situation. Now, there used to be open houses out here in the earlier years then. Like once a year or once every two or three years, they'd have an open house, and this picture was blown up. I mean, they blew it up to put it on display. I was cut out of that picture. I was so embarrassed when we go through the building to see this, and one of them says, Oh, Annie, they cut you out of the picture. I said something to my room supervisor. She says, Oh, I don't blame you. I'd be upset too. And that was the end of it. 
So yes, there, as I said, people don't change. It doesn't matter where you're located. When people have their biases and prejudices, yes, I am aware. My head is not in the sand. But my thing is, if I can't work with you, I will work around you. I was not about to be so discouraged that I walk away. This may be a solution for some people, but it's not mine. So yes, I'm sure I, like many others, have been judged not on what I can do, but on what I look like. So yes, I'm aware that has happened, but as I said, I would not let that get me down. Money is important to all of us. We need it to survive. You may control my purse strings, but you don't control my life. That's just the way I feel about it. Towards the end of Annie's career at NASA, she additionally worked as an equal employment opportunity counselor. As issues arose involving race, gender, or age discrimination, Annie helped address them and work through them. She describes working with individuals in the midst of the civil rights movement and the women's movement. I think there were still the diehards who didn't see that there were problems that needed to be solved. I think there were people who felt, this is the way it was always, and it's doing fine. As he said, you've talked to people who said they were not aware of what was going on, and that may very well be true of some people. It's like, it's someone else's problem. It's not ours. And it's only when we started to, we, the employees, had to get to management and talk and talk and talk and talk to tell them, look, there are problems. There's not equality. If there was equality, we would not need an equal employment opportunity office. We would not need any of that. We would not need any laws that say, this is what you need to do to bring things into compliance. So it had not been all peaches and cream. We do need those laws. I was an EEO counselor at one time, and just talking to some of the supervisors, their mindset was just closed. I'm sure you know what a counselor does. The EEO counselors within NASA. It was not just, a lot of the people thought it was minorities and women, but as soon as they added the age category, a lot of complainers were white males over 40 who believed they were being discriminated against. So it's a kind of thing. Discrimination of any kind can affect a lot of different people, and sometimes those people don't realize it until later on they're affected. Then they can begin to look back and say, oh, that's how someone felt, because now they're on the other end. They may have been right up on top, and then they found themselves in a position of, boy, they took away all of my authority. I really don't have anything interesting to do. So it affects a lot of us, but at different times. It may take some people longer to learn than others. Annie was always an advocate for women in the workplace. Annie describes an experience where she worked to make the dress code more inclusive for women. No one ever said there was a dress code, but I think you did it yourself. It's how you felt about yourself. And of course, there were no pants. We did not wear pants at the time. Women did not wear pants. I can remember the first pants that I wore to work. It was in 1970. In fact, I talked to my room supervisor about it because we started to wear pants in the outside world and I said something to her about, I have a pantsuit I'd really love to wear to work. So we made a pact that we'd come into work the next day in pants and it did cause quite a stir. There was one woman who said, I was just waiting for the first one to wear pants. I don't think she wore a dress ever after that. So that's a change. You know, we took the emphasis off what you're wearing. It's more like you're actually producing. But no, we didn't have any dress, we didn't have any written dress codes. But there were certain things that you knew were acceptable or not. I'm so thankful that NASA created the Oral History Project so that we were able to document Annie's story. Annie clearly didn't want to be a pioneer, but she definitely was. And I feel her story is so important to so many of us today. One of my favorite parts about learning about the history of computing is learning about how women played such an influential role. 
I hope you'll notice as the podcast continues that in a field currently lacking women, its history is filled to the brim with them. Stay tuned as we go through their stories. You can find the full transcript of the interview at our website, storyofcomputing.com. You can also find images and more references for today's episode at our website on Annie Easley's episode page. Today's episode was brought to you by Tipsar Software. Intro music by Joseph McDade. Make sure to check out our website at storyofcomputing.com and follow us on Instagram and Facebook.